Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game-Changing Business Model Disruption, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to help you shake up the status quo in your company's business capabilities and move your organization in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Yes, indeed. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, this is where the best run, and you know what that means. Let's see what the buzz on the street is today. I have a quote from TheEconomist.com, and let's see what it says. Breaking news. The world's most valuable resource is no longer oil, but data. That's right. Data, data, data. You've heard this before, and now we're verifying it. So what's going on in business? It's mid-2018, actually. We're in the second half already, July 2018. And your same old business structure, your business models, your processes, uh-uh, not going to work anymore, not going to propel you forward where you want to go. What should you do? Well, here's the other breaking news. Every company needs to be a software company. Don't disconnect, don't hang up, don't say, what is she talking about? We have a reason for this and we're going to explain it. This is a business model that requires the creation, collection, and processing of data to drive your business value. Now, does it make sense? Why do you need this? Well, business data is becoming the new quote-unquote black oil, an expensive but essential commodity to grease the wheels of digital industry. Come on, you've got to be digital by now. We've been talking about it here on Game Changers for years. If not, listen to any of our 38 series and we'll help you figure out how to get there. So where should you start? Well, I'm just going to say you should start by listening to my three experts on the show today. Let me tell you briefly who they are and then we'll get started with their opening quotes. In just a moment, I'll be introducing you to a newcomer to Game Changers. He's Toby Koppel, C-O-P-P-E-L, co-founder and a partner at Mosaic Ventures. I love the name of that company, and we'll find out what they do. Second on the panel, uh, well, he is one of the sponsors of this series. It's Mark Geall, G-E-A-L-L. He's a senior VP and global head of cloud platform ecosystem at SAP, welcoming him back. And another newcomer, Dr. Ram Jambunathan, J-A-M-B-U-N-A-T-H. H-A-N, if you want to look him up, Senior VP and Managing Director of SAP.io, and we're going to find out all about that when we speak with him. So welcome to my three esteemed panelists. And now let's start off with an opening quote from Toby Koppel at Mosaic Ventures. He sent us a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 1929 to 1968, American Baptist minister and activist who became the most visible spokesperson and leader in the civil rights movement from 1954 until his death untimely death. He was assassinated in 68. Uh, Let's see. He was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal. And there is a holiday here in the U.S. established in many cities and states, and it became a U.S. federal holiday, Martin Luther King Day, in 1986. So here's the quote. It's a long one, so buckle up. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. In dangerous valleys and hazardous pathways, he will lift some bruised and beaten brother to a higher and more noble life. Toby Koppel, welcome to Game Changers. That was a long quote, a beautiful one. How are you today? Fantastic, Bonnie. Thanks for asking. 
I, I can't remember the last time a guest said he was fantastic, so I'm thrilled to have you. There we go. Thrilled goes with fantastic. Toby, we're talking about the new black oil. We're talking about data, businesses becoming software companies, and you sent us a quote about the ultimate measure of a man by Martin Luther King Jr. So you have to explain to me, how do we get from point A to point B? Well, I work with founders of startups every day. I'm a venture capital investor with working with some very ambitious early stage startups. And you know, the startup environment today is as challenging as it's ever been, despite you know the tremendous opportunities created by data, as as we're going to talk about later today. And you know, I think for for many of our founders, sort of their leadership and values are rarely tested in sort of peacetime when things are going well, and it's it's only when you know, there are really real challenges in their business um, or unacceptable behavior by sort of members of their team that sort of their leadership is tested and for sort of their core values, you know, they need to draw on those to take a stand and lead the team through to, uh, you know, firmer ground. And, and so I think, you know, data itself is a, is a um, you know, and the whole strategy of how you use your data is an opportunity, but also a challenge for many businesses, and I think founders need to you know, be able to, to show leadership and conviction in, in sort of what, they, what where they want to take the company, and you know really stand up and be counted. And so I, I, I think this, to me, the quote is is one of, of going back to kind of what do you really believe in, and how do you navigate through the choppy waters ahead. I like it a lot, and and I was wondering about that. I'm thinking as I read the quote more carefully, more in detail, times of challenge and controversy. Is that what you look for as a venture capitalist, Toby? Do you look for companies that are going to say, well, there's a challenge in there. We can meet it, but it might be controversial. Just wondering how much that weighs in when you make an investment decision, controversy. How does that stack up in in the tech world, let's say? It's a, it's a great question. I think if, if there are a dozen investors sitting around looking at a company and they all agree that it's a great investment, the chance, chances are there are going to be a dozen companies all trying to do the same thing. That, that typically means it's not going to work out to be a great investment. So what we do look for is, is truly unique, often contrarian ideas or mm-hmm. ideas that you know, 11 out of those 12 investors will look and think, I don't believe in that. I don't see that. Um, how could that possibly be true? And, you know, we're hoping to be that sort of one in 12 investor because of our experience and our, our studying carefully of different industries and different themes that we actually can spot the opportunity. And so, we, you know, we, we very much look for those entrepreneurs who have those types of ideas that are incredibly ambitious, yet you know, they're not obvious. Thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for answering my question. I appreciate that. It's always, always interesting to pick apart a quote, as far as I'm concerned, and see if we can get a deeper meaning. Thank you. We'll be talking to you more in a few minutes. Welcome, Toby. And now Mark Giall, one of the sponsors of this series. He's back, and he's got an interesting quote from Bill Gates. Everybody knows William Bill Henry Gates III, born in 1955. I call him a kid. American business magnate, investor, author, philanthropist, co-founder of Microsoft Corporation, along with Paul Alan, uh, let's see, he's been included since 1987 in Forbes' list of the world's wealthiest people. As of 2017, he was the richest person in the world with an estimated net worth of just a a mere $84.8 billion. What can I say? Uh, Let's go to the quote. Success today requires the agility and drive to constantly rethink, reinvigorate, react, and reinvent. I love the quote. Mark Eel, welcome back. How are you? I am very good today, Bonnie. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining me and putting together this great panel. I'm so pleased to meet Toby and Rom. Looking forward to a great conversation. So we've used this Bill Gates quote before from you, Mark, but I thought it was so appropriate for us today talking about it seems to me it's radical to say, as I said in the opening, every company needs to be a software company. So can you relate that quote to this? Maybe it's controversial what we're talking about today, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we're we're going through a, a period of, of quite dramatic change, right? I mean, there there are lots of opportunities for for Toby and Ram in terms of finding these these disruptors that are out there. And I think that you know what what Bill Gates said so well is that you know you you need to have this not only philosophy around agility, but actually deliver this day to day, right? You have to look at how you can disrupt the status quo, how you can start to to rethink uh, the norms that, that, that you've been applying. And it's, it's only through doing that you can sustain growth and, and sustain your position in a market. So, you know, this has never been more true than it is today. Um, and it's something that, you know, many of the, the companies that, that we speak to um, and the partners that we speak to are, are wrestling with as well. So uh, I think it's, uh, it's an apt one and, and one worth reusing. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And a question for you. Do you think the, the title of this episode, Become a Software Company, is this a shock to, to companies listening around the world, our global audience? Do you think they're saying, wait a minute, I'm a manufacturer. Wait a minute, I'm, I'm producing something. Wait a minute, I'm in the consulting business. And we're saying become a software company. That's the new business model. That's going to take you clear to success, thriving and succeeding and surviving in the digital economy. Do you think this is a shocking statement to people or is this something they've been hearing for a while, Mark? Uh, maybe it depends on your perspective and your age, right? I think you know maybe some of the, the new millennials coming through the, the workplace they, they they see it because they're used to it. But you know every company now needs needs to you know collect and analyze and understand vast amounts of, of data that is out there and and you know how you process that, how you you drive new business models, new revenue streams from that is is becoming increasingly critical, right? You look at, you know, traditional businesses, you know, Uber disrupting a, a, a market, leveraging the data that, that, that they have at hand. So, no, it, it's, it's probably not shocking. I think people have, have had an opportunity to, to experience the, the opportunities, but also the risks. Um, and it's now very much on, on CEOs' agendas to, to understand what should they be doing and, and how can they disrupt. Thank you very much, and that that is a nice segue from what we just talked about with Toby about the controversy. I think the disruption can be controversial. Thank you, Mark. A lot more coming from you, and now let's introduce our third panelist, Dr. Ram Jambunathan, and oh my goodness, he sent me a quote from Jay-Z's song. Song, it's called an interlude, it's called a lot of things, and it's called Public Service Announcement. It's from the Black Album, November 14, 2003. It was the eighth studio album by American rapper Jay-Z, and it was released by Rockefeller uh, with hyphens in between records, advertised as his final album before retiring, but ha he resumed recording career three years later in 2006. The quote is, allow me to reintroduce myself, but uh, Ram, with your permission, may I read the lyrics that led up to that line? Is that okay? Yes. 
Please. I did my I did my homework. Quote, this is a public, and I don't sound at all like Jay-Z, obviously. This is a public service announcement sponsored by Just Blaze and the good folks at Rockefeller Records. Fellow Americans, it is with the utmost pride and sincerity that I present this recording as a living testament and recollection of history in the making during our generation. Allow me to reintroduce myself. So I don't, I'm not even going to ask you how I did other than just reading the words. Ram, welcome to Game Changers. Tell me where in the world did you get this quote? And you have to do the connecting the dots, the breadcrumbs, if you will. How does it relate to our topic today? And welcome. Yeah, so, um, thank you. Uh, and it's a, really an honor and a pleasure to be here. And, you know, I, I actually like rap and I like kind of the wordplay and lyrics, whether you think of kind of the original rapper perhaps being, you know, the bards of old or even Dylan in the 60s and then the, the kind of the urban storytellers of today like a Jay-Z. Um, I, I tend to, I like all genres of music, but I found this quote actually quite, quite interesting for me personally and then also I think it's really connected to the topic that we have here because we've just been talking about how companies have to transform themselves in that era of data and how they have to kind of think about how they're going to take themselves forward for the next 20 years and, and or, or beyond. And every time, you know, they go through this type of reinvention, they're actually having to reintroduce themselves to their industries, to their customers, uh, and so on. And, and even internally, how they make the, the change in terms of tra- cultural transformation. They're actually reintroducing themselves and reinventing themselves. You know, similarly, I think personally, I've been uh, on my own path of reintroducing myself. I don't probably don't have a very standard career when it comes to where I am today in, at, at SAP and software, given my background doing industrial research in a much different area of technology, you know, followed by an entrepreneurial stint, uh, time in consulting at McKinsey, and then various areas at SAP where I ended up back here in the world where I started many years ago being in, in entrepreneurial space. And, and even here, when we work with startups, it's about continuing reintroducing themselves because startups, we often know pivot. And so there you're betting on team, the, the betting on the individual, um, you know, and really the founder's capabilities uh, to succeed. As Toby had mentioned, uh, you know, they're always challenging themselves and, and having to kind of step forward to win. Sometimes that means changing and, so, and sometimes that means, you know, going a totally unexpected direction that they, expect, that they initially charted out for themselves. Uh, and that means reintroducing themselves and trying to win all over again. Um, you know, just like uh, uh, Jay-Z uh, mentioned in, in, that, in that quote. So. Thank you very much. Uh, very interesting. Let, let me just turn that around a little bit, if you don't mind, Ram, and thinking about companies that have been around for a while. I think Mark just mentioned, I was asking the perspective on being a software company, whether that was breaking news or shocking news to some of our listeners. He said it depends on how long you've been around and, and the age, I assume the age of the company, the age of the leadership. And I'm wondering, let me introduce myself. Is this something that companies need to do when they have a culture shift, when they have a focus shift on their business model, do they need to say something like, hey, you've known us for the past 30 years, but we're coming out of the gate brand new with a new approach and better able to serve our customers and take you into the future. What do you think? So is this could this be a mantra for companies with that shift? Allow me I to think reintroduce it depends, myself. I think it depends on the company. I think mm-hmm. it depends on the the 
uh, company journey. I mean, I think, um, and how they've been engaging with their customers. Sometimes uh, dramatic uh, announcement may be necessary, but also sometimes it could be less credible when it comes to, you know, uh, say a company that could have been in food processing or say camera technology now introducing, reintroducing themselves as a blockchain company, yeah. or, you know, with their own cryptocurrency, that may not go over as successfully as a company which may have said, you know, we're actually in the manufacturing space and now we are going to reintroduce ourselves as a company doing this, um, now selling a different service that's based on our knowledge and expertise based on the data we've acquired. So as an example, you know, there's a company called Kaiser Compressor in Germany, which may sells uh, uh, air compressors, but they're shifting their model now, their business model, they're expanding it to, you know, not just shifting, uh, sell, selling, um, you know, air compressors. What they want to do is they want to sell, you know, compressed air or units of air, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Because if I'm a, if I'm a consumer or a customer of their products, at the end of the day, I'm not looking to buy air compressors. I'm looking to buy units of compressed air. I'm investing exactly. in that outcome. I'm not in, you know, investing to, I'm not investing to hire, a, a, buy a product for us and, and versus a specific temporal job. I'm looking to, you know, hire a product that delivers a certain outcome uh, that I need. I'm investing at the end of the day for like the IBM uh, old tagline, we, uh, we don't sell drills, we sell holes. You know, companies want the, want, are not buying the drills. They're looking to, to, to buy the holes. Similarly, um, here we're looking, you know, companies are thinking about, hey, how do I leverage the data that I have to become, uh, to deliver the outcome that I need? So the, the reintroduction then becomes, how do I shift from selling products to getting customers to buy or, or invest in those outcomes, which is what I want them to achieve, which is going to help me stay successful for the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years as the industrialists that, that Mark mentioned um, are looking and, and examining how they can stay relevant going forward. Thank you, Rob. Great answer. Appreciate the thoughtfulness you put into that. And now let's circle back around to Toby Koppel. Toby, I have three questions for you. Number one, where are you today? Number two, what's your favorite drink in the whole wide world? This is called What's in Your Cup Today, but you don't have to be actually drinking it. We just want to know a little bit about you. And the third question is, can you tell us in 60 seconds what Mosaic Ventures is and how and why you co-founded it? So go ahead, Toby. Hi, Bonnie. I am in London, in the UK today. Beautiful, sunny day. I think uh, your president is uh, arriving today to meet with our queen. Yes. So we're rolling out the red carpet for him. Okay. Um, my favorite drink, um, I have uh, an interesting story. So um, when I first started going to China in the early 2000s, when I was the chief strategy officer for Yahoo!, I was working with some of the big internet companies of the day in China, like Sina and Sohu and NetEase, and you know, they were very proud to serve Great Wall Wine, which was the kind of most famous of the Chinese wineries. Um, I think the, the, the wine was Chateau Sun God from Hebei Province, and I think, I think they even served it to President Trump when he met with President Xi at the end of last ah. year at the state dinner. Um, I have to say it was interesting wine, but it, I've actually drunk much better wine. <laughs> I put on a brave face at the time, and when I went back to China in the in the 
fall of 2005, after we'd made our Alibaba investment, which is when we bought 40% of Alibaba for a billion dollars, that turned into $100 billion for Yahoo. Um, so a good investment. We were actually able to choose the wine for the dinner, and I was able to choose one of my favorite Burgundies, which is really my favorite drink in the world, which is uh, called Claude de Lombre. It's in uh, Mor- uh, Moray Saint-Denis in, in, in Burgundy. And, uh, um, and I've gotten to know the winemaker there, who's a chap named Thierry, and um, just love the way that he expresses the terroir in his wines. I, uh, so I, I go visit him every, every summer in... Um, in in uh, in Burgundy and uh, get to enjoy my favorite wine. How lovely. I was able to look up uh, Sun God, I think that's what you said. Are we talking about the Great Wall Chateau Sun God Reserve Merlot Cab? Is that the one? Exactly. Okay. I couldn't print, I couldn't spell the other one you said, but I thought that was interesting. Thank you very much. Now tell me just a little bit about Mosaic Ventures. I love the name of the company. How did you come up with the name and when and why did you co-found it? It's, a, it's uh, an interesting etymology for the name. So uh, as I'm sure you will know, um, the, uh, the first browser um, was called Mosaic that Mark Andreessen coded up when he was mm-hmm. the... University of Illinois, um, and uh, so it sort of brings us back to our roots, because when I started out in my career, I was in the right place at the right time. I just finished grad school in 95, and uh, I was in the U.S., and I, I headed towards Silicon Valley, and I never looked back, and sort of Mosaic was one of those things that opened my eyes up to the world of the Internet. Um, that's one part of the, the, the etymology. The second part is that it, you know, when you're an early stage investor, you're really peering through a lot of fog and clouds to figure out: is this going to be a great opportunity? Is this the right team? Is this the great market? And you you have less than twenty percent of the information available to make that decision. Um, so you're really piecing together lots of fragments of information and then trying to assemble them into some kind of mosaic that you can then make a decision about. So that's the other uh, half of the. The, the choice behind the, the, the name of Mosaic. And it's a, it's a firm that, having been in sort of the technology startup world for over 20 years, I wanted to start my own firm with some, um, some partners that I'd known a long time. And we raised a fund, you know, four years ago of $150 million. And we're really trying to serve sort of early stage founders at Series A across Europe. They happen to be based in Europe. They're building global businesses, very ambitious companies, crypto, blockchains, vertical AI applications, people working in mobility and location areas, uh, people working in bioinformatics. So very ambitious areas of sort of more newer disruptive technology that weren't being well served by some of the traditional investment firms here. And so we we felt there was an opportunity to to, to hang out our shingle and to, to to serve them with a very Silicon Valley-style approach to, to investing. And, and we've been doing that for four years, and we have already, a, we think, a fantastic portfolio of uh, 15 companies and, and growing. Thank you. Very interesting, and congratulations on your success. I just looked it up. Of course, NCSA Mosaic, or simply Mosaic, is a web browser that popularized the World Wide Web and the Internet. It wasn't the first, but it was the first that was most widely used. It was a client for earlier Internet protocols, such as what we call FTP and others, and Gopher. So there, 1993, January 23rd, release date. Thank you very much for the little bit of history lesson there, and nice to meet you, Toby. And now, Mark Eel, where are you today, and what's in your cup? 
So I am I am travelling at the moment, Bonnie. So I'm in Philadelphia. Um, it's nice and warm and sunny here. Um, and what I like to do when I'm on some of my sort of business trips is to sample the the local craft beers that they have. So whilst I've been here the last couple of days, I was trying something called Konshohocken Hoplife Double IPA, which is a, a local beer from sort of the, the Wayne St. David's area just outside Philadelphia, um, mm-hmm. so close to obviously where our offices are here. And uh, it's a rather strong beer with uh, good seasonal flavors. And it's, it was uh, kept my evenings interesting, let's put it that way. Um, Very and I have the remnants of one of those today. <laughs> I'm looking it up, IPA Conchohocken. Good for you for pronouncing it better than I do. C-O-N-S-H-O-H-O-C-K-E-N. Conchohocken Brewing Company, a neighborhood craft brewery with American styles, growler fills, and a limited pub grub menu. And it actually is located at East Elm Street in Conchohocken, Pennsylvania. And they open at 3 o'clock today, Eastern, if anybody wants to see it. Go there. Award-winning Philadelphia region craft brewery brewing various IPAs, Imperials, a killer ESB, and many other styles. Visit our tap room in Conchahawken, Pennsylvania. Very interesting. It's called a brew pub, and they have one in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania as well. Barrel-aged and unfiltered IPA. Does that sound like the right place, Mark? Absolutely. Very good. I want to thank you for bringing two very, very powerful people to join you on the panel today. I'm, I'm always impressed with you, but so far very impressed with Toby, and I can't wait to find out a little bit more about Ram. He's already given us a little bit of his bio. Dr. Ram Jambarnathan, I'd love to know where you are today and what's in your cup, and then just a brief overview of what is SAP.io. Go ahead, Ram. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, today I'm in... Uh, of chilly San Francisco, you know, foggy in the morning, probably warm up a little bit in the afternoon. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, but it's, uh, it's like to say that the heart of, uh, the heart of innovation, um, you know, they have many of what happens in the world starts here, scales here, and then goes out elsewhere. And I'm not saying it's the only place where it happens, but certainly obviously uh, world renowned. Uh, while I'm not, uh, Currently enjoying what what I would like to have in my cup. Um, this is actually just a, a cup of uh, chicory coffee. By my drink of choice would be in an evening something very simple, um, uh, just a, a classic rye old fashioned. And actually, I it's funny. I'd never. Uh, this is kind of maybe a, 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 just a funny anecdote, but I'd never actually had an old fashioned. But I was watching an you know episode of Mad Men and Don Draper, you know the protagonist. Mm-hmm. His choice of drink was always uh, the old fashioned. So I thought that looks pretty cool. I mean, it's because you know he was just a cool guy drinking it. But then I I uh, I started to get in the habit of, of sampling and and enjoying uh, old fashions, but instead of with uh, bourbon with with rye. And you know, I, amazingly enough, one of the things I judge. Uh, Old fashioned has not only the quality of the ingredients, but the cube in the middle. Because I, I don't like uh, all of these little ice cubes in my old fashioned. I really like a a uh, a big ice cube. It's per, um, ideally kind of shaved down to a nice large, you know, square cube itself with the with the with the old fashioned poured over it. And I think it's a symbol of both the simplicity of the drink as well as kind of the care that was taken in, in making it. So that's my would would be. My my, what would be in my cup should it be l- later in the day, you know? So, 
I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say that. Um, and then, you know, when we talk a little bit about uh, SAP uh, and SAP IO, you know, SAP IO is our business unit focused on how we incubate innovation and drive new business models on, on behalf of the company. And it was really instance, instantiated, you know, with the, with the idea that we, we needed to help um, enable our you know, uh, the, uh, a new ecosystem we saw emerging around data and emerging technologies uh, coupled with the ability for SAP to start, you know, everybody knew us as, a, as probably as an ERP company or supply chain company, but now this company, which and now we could be an enterprise that uh, could help enable a new ecosystem uh, around ourselves that, that would then further uh, enable our customers to actually capture the value of this data. And so, um, and, and it enabled them to get more value out of uh, the systems, the SAP systems that they had already in place that were running uh, the core and critical parts of this businesses. So for us, again, this is another example of how SAP is reintroducing itself to the, uh, to the world at large and certainly to key parts of, the, of an ecosystem that we hadn't engaged I think uh, as meaningfully or as directly in the past when it, come, when it comes to a curated approach to, um, to, to working with startups. We have, so under my remit includes our early stage investment fund in startups uh, where we make direct investments into seed and series A uh, startups as well as uh, running a global network of top tier programs for startups including uh, accelerators. Uh, those are run, now running in Berlin uh, New York, uh, San Francisco, Tel Aviv, and we'll be launching Paris this fall. So really a, a, a way that we can help not only promising entrepreneurs in a, in, a, in a thoughtful, curated way to build innovative software and deliver value, valuable outcomes for our customers, but also uh, enable our, our customers to uh, get value uh, in, in new and exciting ways. Thank you very much. New and exciting ways is what it's all about. Gentlemen, we are so far into the show. I'm not going to take a break. Mark knows we usually take a break around 23 after, but this has been so interesting. I just wanted to hear everything you all had to say. So we're going to dive directly into the roundtable. And Toby, I'm looking at the great conversational statements you sent me before the show. And let me pick one. Let's see what we want to talk about here. Um... Let's see. Let's talk about some of the issues with data. You say the abundance of data that can be collected changes the nature of competition in every industry. With data, there are extra network effects. By collecting more data, a firm has more scope to improve its products, which attracts more users, generates more data, and so on. So why don't you give us some examples, and, and then we'll go around the table and see if the co-panelists, um, Mark and Ram, agree or disagree with you. Toby, why don't you introduce us to the concept of the abundance of data, please. Sure. So in, in, in other internet businesses like marketplace businesses, whether it's Airbnb or eBay, you know, there are network effects that come from you know, the more uh, buyers on the platform it attracts more sellers, the more sellers on the platform it attracts more buyers or renters or uh, you know, Uber is the same with more drivers, it attracts more passengers. And, so there's a network effect from, from liquidity in the marketplace. And what we see with these data businesses is that also can be the same because you can 
improve the quality of the service that you offer um, by having better data. And therefore, by improving the quality of the service you offer, you actually attract more customers who bring more data. Mm-hmm. And so you can create this network effect. So it, you have increasing returns to scale from a business that without data looked like an ordinary business, but with these network effects and provided by the data, you, you can sort of turbocharge it. So an example which you know, I think everyone will be familiar with, but in mm-hmm. the world of, of self-driving cars, you know, one of the, one of the uh, anomalies when you look out there um, is you know, Tesla today is an electric car company that itself you know, is worth you know, sig- significantly more than General Motors, which, which sells over 100 times more cars as Tesla. But why is that? People believe Tesla is actually gathering more data than any of the other car manufacturers from its self-driving cars, and therefore it will be able to get to the fully realized autonomous car um, destination well ahead of GM or Ford or, or, or Daimler, for example, because of this data network effect. And so these, these, these vast pools of data can actually act as a protective mode because it will be just so much harder for others to get there at the same speed. And there, there are many examples across many different industries. We have you know, com- a number of companies that are sort of vertical, uh, mach- AI, machine learning-based companies that are collecting huge amounts of data, training their algorithms around radiology or oncology in healthcare, or, or mm-hmm. we have examples in a number of spaces, um, energy industry, that by, by, by having this data first, you can just improve at a speed that's so much greater than your competitors and who will never be able to catch up. Thank you, Toby. Great introduction to this part of our conversation. Mark, you all love to get your thoughts, agree or disagree. And do you have any other real examples you could share with us? Um, I, I, I certainly agree. Um, I think it's, a, it's a, a very fascinating trend in terms of how business models are changing. Um, we're also taking a look at, you know, the underlying platform business models, right? So, you know, Toby sort of mentioned Airbnb and, and, and Uber, which are, you know, these classical platform-based business models where they're leveraging the network effect, they're leveraging the data, and, you know, we, we see that sort of play out in even in sort of more traditional um, industries. You know, one of the things I'm trying to drive with, with, with some of our traditional partners, our so-called services partners, is, is how can they start to deliver innovation more effectively, but how do we, how do we bring together the, the demand of our customers that don't necessarily know what that innovation is, what business process it's impacting, what data it is that they want to, to curate and analyze, and bring that together with partners that have the, these agile skills and agile capabilities to deliver that value very quickly. So, you know, we, we, we see it every day. Um, what's interesting, though, to me, and, you know, the reason why I was excited about this show is, is you know, it's very difficult to value, right? I mean, Toby sort of mentioned the fact that, you know, Tesla with its, with its current sort of market 
share, you know, is, is, is a fraction of the size of GM, but is valued so much more, and it's being valued based on intangible assets, right? It's being, it's being valued on the data and what potentially it can do with that data and the network effects. And, you know, Toby mentioned that, you know, his challenge is, is seeing through that fog and valuing something with only 20% of the information. And I think that's, a, that's actually a real challenge, right? I was a, an analyst for, for too many years following the tech space, trying to value more traditional software and technology companies. And, and that in itself was challenging. Now, as we apply this across all industries where, you know, the, the traditional, um, you know, asset valuations should still apply because they're still creating goods, they're still creating services, um, but the value is much more esoteric. So how, how do you value that? So that to me is one of the, the big the big interesting conundrums that, that, that needs to, to be sold and why we need the, the likes of, you know, Ram and Toby to, to, to spot those opportunities and, and make sure that they get the right level of backing and investment so that they can actually deliver against that opportunity. Thank you, Mark. And Ram, I'd love to get your thoughts briefly on this topic before we move around to something from Mark's list. Ram, agree or disagree with what's been said? No, I mean, um, I think both Mark and Toby have come with you know, some excellent insights into what the, 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 what the value of data can provide, whether it's around scale in some of the B2C contexts, like an Airbnb or Uber, or some of the uh, um, other contexts of around uh, how, you know, the value, how data is now increasingly seen as this intangible asset that deserves some value and perhaps an outsized value what Mark, Mark's example of Tesla now being valued more than traditional automakers that may make, you know, a hundred times as many cars annually that, that Tesla does, um, which is just phenomenal. And people are really, investors are really starting to understand what the potential of data is and really believing that we we're, sca- we're just um, scratching the surface, you know, and we talked about, you know, some of the B2C marketplaces just now about how consumers can, uh, can benefit you know, as, as a network uh, have uh, evolved. We're also seeing this in B2B marketplaces and not just um, being able to provide, say, buyers on, say, um, who, are, who are looking to buy new goods from their, um, or, or businesses who are looking to buy new and better goods from their suppliers, having better insight and better ability to discover uh, what products are going to best need, meet their businesses' needs. But also, like we're seeing new talent marketplaces evolve. Of course, I think people are aware of like the freelance marketplaces, but now we're starting to see HR recruiting marketplaces that are evolving and how can, how can I drive new concepts of like business beyond bias if I can, um, you know, take a, if I can t- remove human biases through machine learning algorithms mm-hmm. or if I can uh, apply new types of analyses at scale and look at uh, like a psychometric analysis or other kind of behavioral analysis and look at populations at scale, which is what you know, data plus machine learning and neural networks can enable us to do and really pro- propel businesses forward in, in, in the right way or in, in, a, in I think, a way that we never conceived possible. And then, of co- and then other areas, like we're seeing the emergence of, you know, um, of process automation when, you know, people were... You, you know, um, it would say very basic tasks you have armies of people doing today um, around basically could be cut and paste or could be just typing in, um, say, invoice information from a paper receipt into a screen. What happens if you have a machine doing that 
and then what what you know what are the value added tasks the more interesting meaningful tasks or um, fulfilling um, roles that people can be exposed to and put their minds to if we can enable um, machines to do what you know humans were previously doing in a, in a very lower skilled fashion so I think there's both there's a big opportunity for us at the same time there's some thoughtfulness that needs to also be put into place and, and, and be considered when it comes to, you know, what is, what is the data future, what is, what is um, data and then these, these next generation levels of, of automation and intelligence really mean around the future of business, the future of workforce. Thank you very much, Ram. And you know what? In the interest of time, I'm going to, rather than going back around to you, Toby, and having you comment on them, I'm going to go to another topic in Mark's list. And Mark, I think this, what I'm going to talk about now is a question that's on everybody's mind, especially we're in the era of GDPR. You asked the question, who owns the data? We're talking about companies. Everybody has the data. What are they going to do with it? How much more are they going to get? Is it, are there network effects, as Toby just said? So the question is, who owns the data? The corporation that generates it? the consumers it relates to, the manufacturers of the assets, and you go on to say IP value and ownership, data value and data ownership will be significant challenges to overcome in an increasingly regulatory-driven world. This carries meaningful business risk. Mark, can you enlighten us, please, because I know this is on. This is the year of being concerned about data, right? I think we've been concerned about data probably going back to... <laughs> Back to 2008 and the last uh, financial crisis, but yes, Fair I enough. mean this year. I think yes, this year with with in Europe the the introduction of of some of the GDPR regulation, um, there are lots of questions over you know what you can do with with that customer data. I mean, everyone would have received you know a multitude of emails at the end of May um, when some of the new regulation came in, which was effective asking you to opt back in to, to whether they could continue to, to market to you. But, you know, this is a, a, a very real um, challenge that, that, that we see and, and also discussing with many of our customers because, you know, there is a huge amount of value in, in, in business data. We're fortunate as an organization that, that, you know, our customers drive a lot of the global transactions. We also have these business networks um, for things like direct and indirect procurements um, that, that can also provide insights, right? So Ariba, um, which is our sort of business network for, for, for procurement, you know, they saw changes in corporate spending behavior, you know, six or seven months before um, the financial crisis in 2008. And that's something that, you know, they could have derived real value from, right, if they were, they were monetizing that and, and offering back to businesses, not only in terms of how do you solve problem A, which was improving the efficiency of procurement, but, you know, problem B was actually what, what's, the, what's the, the impact, what are the signs, what are the trends that are emerging? Um, and, you know, at the time, they weren't, they weren't monetizing it. Um, you know, we, we see the same thing today where, you know, our customers are collecting vast amounts of, of customer data, um, see the opportunity, want to, to build these new business models upon it, but, you know, also are, are a little wary of, of some of the GDPR risks and other risks that are out there. So that, that's a challenge, right? Regulation seems only to be moving in one direction. It's a little bit like entropy, right? And it's only going to get, it's only going to get sort of, uh, you know, sort of, um, sort of more 
sort of binding in some ways. Um, so, you know, that's the, the, the challenge that the customers will, will need to find. Yes, they're collecting the data. Yes, they can put it to, to use, but they have to make sure that they're not impacting sort of legislation or, or regulatory requirements in terms of what they can be doing with that consumer or customer's data. Thank you very much, Mark. I agree with you about 2008. I was just thinking the specter of GDPR companies trying to ramp up. How many years now we've been talking about it? May 25th came and went, and, and companies are still reeling on how much they have to comply and what they have to do and all the systems that changed. It was certainly something that wasn't a surprise, but it might not have been a happy happy change of regulatory system, shall we say. Dr. Ram Jambunath, I'd love to get your thoughts on what Mark just shared in terms of who owns that data? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I think it's about you know. I think the I think there I think there are a few you know nuances there. Certainly, um, when we think about uh, when 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 we meet with start, startups uh, who are building say new businesses around data, whether it's um, uh, you know ingesting machine data or ingesting product data the question always arises well who has that data because when you think about their future business model the, the business model becomes a lot more valuable or could become a lot more valuable if they can start if they if the the startup that's ingesting this data also has some rights to use that data in some kind of a, a direct or indirect form when it comes to blending data across customers to drive derive new insights or, or feed that information back to their own uh, customers or sell it to third parties, right? And so, you know, what if you, and so that becomes a big challenge and how do you then effectively price that ownership of that data becomes uh, an, a, a succeeding question um, are there new rev share models or new business models that can be that can emerge between customers or consumers and businesses? I think at the at the same same time you mentioned the GDPR question. Mm-hmm. I, I think we will you know it will be interesting to see when companies that uh, have, are not in are discovered to not be in GDPR clients after a certain amount of time what the you know the EU, or now you know, we're talking about California GDPR. What the what the financial ramifications could be, um, or will the fines will be imposed, or what will the mm-hmm. um, what will the penalties be? You know, we see that uh, you know Facebook a few months ago went through the whole Cambridge Analytica uh, fallout, but now you know a few months later the stock is at an all-time high. So what do we, you know, are are consumers really that concerned, or what are the instances which consumers will actually um, be uh, so uh, aghast at uh, that? They will say no. We we will, we need to take action against uh, or some kind of more forceful action against the use of our own individual data. We need to actually see uh, teeth in the uh, in in the compliance uh, functions of governments or of other enforcement bodies when it comes to use or misuse of our data. So those are kind of just some questions I have. We're we're seeing that, however, that um, startups um, that are in the uh, space of GDPR are really uh, taking off, especially when it comes to either data discovery, like a company like Big ID, or um, our, our data, our, our data or compliance enforcement, policy enforcement, are really seeing uh, tremendous growth and you know, corresponding valuations. It's a hot space. And so there is a class of investors, I'm sure Toby can comment on it further, which, is, which are looking at this uh, area and 
you know, starting to place their bets or contrarian bets on what the future of, of uh, GDPR data ownership really means. Thank you very much, Ron. Very thoughtful. And Toby, coming around the table to you, and then when you're done with your comments on this, we're going to have to launch quickly into our crystal ball predictions round. I think we've been doing a little predicting here already. Toby, thoughts on what we're talking about? Data ownership. Who, 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 who has the, where does the buck stop? Let's start with that. Well, there's certainly confusion about who owns the data and who can benefit from it. And we think that's actually because it's a problem that also is an opportunity for startups because the you know today you know we think most just take, you know consumers are, are are effectively exchanging their data with a Facebook or an Amazon um, you know very much you know for free quote unquote you know, they're getting you know access to a you know uh, an Instagram photo feed or some free so-called news, but it's really, there's a cost to them of the data. And I think that the, the opportunity is to demonstrate how much actually value could be captured if you allowed them to regain control of their data. And one of the themes that we're investing behind is sort of this notion of, of moving from today's more centralized web-based architecture, where the sort of the behemoths of Facebook and Amazon and Google they have these huge, fat applications that um, have wall gardens around all the data. And we think there's an opportunity using more decentralized architecture, sort of blockchain-based approach, where you can actually move the data into um, a, a place where consumers and businesses can control their own data and then negotiate with third parties who want to use their data for a much fairer exchange of value. And we think this could be, you know, this could lead to an entire sort of rewriting of the architecture of the internet um, entirely, and, and, and create opportunities for, for a whole range of new startups. Um, and we've, we've been investing ourselves in a number of, sort of blockchain-based sort of infrastructure and application companies, and you know, we, we think this is a tremendous um, entrepreneurial opportunity for those that are brave enough to sort of get, um, go after it. So, we while there are challenges around. You know, who owns the data and the regulations? You know, as as sort of venture capitalists, you know, we're looking at the opportunity here, and our founders are too that this could uh, uh, rewrite the rules of the web. Thank you very much, Toby. I want you to put on your crystal ball predictions hat, whatever it looks like, and I want you to give me just 60 seconds. We're very tight on time right now. 60 seconds of what will we be talking about, let's say 2020 to 2025, when it comes to this topic, talking about everybody considering themselves a software company, data-driven, data-driven, data-driven businesses. Will it come to pass? Will it still be a what? Talk to me. 60 seconds. Toby Koppel at Mosaic Ventures. Go. We, well, we think every company will be using software to, uh, data to, to drive their applications, uh, using um, advanced machine learning to make those applications more intelligent and deliver values to their customers. That's going to be an absolute requirement for, for everyone. We won't be talking about data per se because it will be a fundamental part of every mm-hmm. business. And so we will not be thinking about it as something that's separate, just as we won't be thinking of, of blockchain as a technology, blockchain will be part of everything, and it will actually power many of these data-based uh, uh, applications uh, going forward. Thank you very much. Brief and to the point. Let's go to Mark Gial. Mark, prediction, 60 seconds. What's on your mind? 
I mean, much the same as, as Toby, but also, you know, I, I hope that we as consumers will be much more careful in terms of how we leverage our own data and our own information and, you know, maybe put that to better use, right? So I think, you know, many consumers are pretty naive today. Um, you know, probably don't check out, you know, what they're what they're signing their life away to, and I think we will become more sophisticated and and even see new opportunities for ourselves, right? Even in, in terms of improving the quality of our life, or maybe even, you know, some commercial benefits from that. So I, I think that sort of general awareness on how we can leverage and, and utilize our own data um, will, will will become more evident in that time frame. Thank you very much, and I left sixty seconds for Dr. Rum. Jambunathan, Ram, talk to me. What are you, actually, Ram? You can have ninety seconds because they were so brief and to the point. So go ahead. Yeah, well, I think uh, Toby and Mark uh, gave some very uh, excellent insights and predictions in terms of you know how they are see how they believe the future is going to evolve in the next uh, few years, and uh, and I, I think I would largely align with what they what they had to say around. You know uh, the, the, where the future of data and, and monetization and value creation may happen, especially when it comes to the new business models or that can be exposed or that can be created when it comes to consumers perhaps either being exposed to new opportunities or radically changing their behavior. So I think we'll see um, some some uh, investment happen or some new business model creation happening on both sides, depending on if you believe that consumers are not going to change their behavior or, and therefore will need, and therefore uh, if they increase sharing of data, what, you know, new op- new services or opportunities can be exposed and, and as well as the, the, what happens if they do radically change their behavior. And I think there are actually two distinct consu- segments here, both within the enterprise as well as, you know, and B2C business models. And that's really the new demographics entering the workforce who are more used to sharing data versus others that are, you know, less less used to or less open to sharing data. And there could actually be two different um, types of, of businesses going forward to, to, to serve those different demographics and, and their own life needs and trends and their willingness to share data in the future. At the same, in the enterprise, I just see an enormous amount of um, value creation continuing to happen as you uh, drive autonomy and, and machine learning into business processes. Um, and, and I think you're going to see a, a new class of uh, business to customer relationship management arising in terms of really being able to serve segments of one, as they like to say, really treating each customer as a as an individual customer that you're creating a carefully consu- uh, curated experience for when it comes to B2B relationships. Thank you very much, Ron. I'm going to have to say thank you. We are out of time. Great predictions, everybody. I want to thank our three special guests, Toby Koppel at Mosaic Ventures, Dr. Ram Jambunathan at SAP IO, and of course, OHO, and of course, Mark Eall at SAP Cloud Platform Ecosystem. And thank you to our tweeters, Torsten Leidek. You tweeted beautifully today and retweeted in Sylvie Sinod. Thank you so much, Sinod. And the Choop Dog. Whoever that is, thank you very much. We appreciated your retweeting on the Tesla comment that came from Toby Koppel. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. And thank you to Aaron, our engineer. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, just like Toby, just like Mark, just like Rom. Have a great one. Bye-bye.
Thanks again for tuning in to Game Changing Business Model Disruption. The best run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham on Thursdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.